Uh, well, my, my wife, Tana, uh, recently attended a, a women's event here at Alliance uh, where participants were given the opportunity right at the beginning to introduce themselves um, to each other. The, the first person she met told her that uh, first, this first lady told her that she and her friend did not actually go to Alliance. They, they, they go to another church um, here in Boone. She went on to volunteer the information that they, they had tried Alliance but the pastor, well, he just spoke too fast, and they, they couldn't understand him. They, they, they went on, she went on to say, we recently came, and he apparently is speaking more slowly because we learned a lot about Paul and Timothy, uh, but, but, but we just can't come here. He talks way too fast. So then she asked, well, what's the pastor's name anyway? And my wife said, well, it's Pastor Scott. And, and the lady said, well, do you know him? <laughs> and and Tennessee said, well, yes, he's my husband. <laughs> And the lady was, you know, kind of embarrassed and, and uh, apologized. And told her, don't worry, don't, don't be sorry. I have been telling him this for years that you talk too fast. No one can understand you. And I just want to be clear, okay? First of all, you all give me a hard time that it takes forever to get through books. And then you tell me that I talk too fast. Pick one. You can't have both. <laughs> it reminds me of the truth that you only get one chance uh, to make a first impression. You see, in our study of the gospel according to Mark, uh, we are introduced to the, to the main character of the study, uh, of the book, of the story. We are introduced to him this morning, and what an introduction. We are supposed to be, we're supposed to come away this morning amazed, <laughs> astounded by this first impression Mark started this gospel, you remember, with a title, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, uh, the Son of God. And then, then he spent the next seven verses talking about John the Baptist. We saw that John, uh, in fulfillment of prophecy, was the Elijah uh, to come that, that Malachi talked about, and that he was the forerunner to the Christ that that Isaiah talked about. And all of the Gospels tell the story of this John the Baptist, and they all then followed the story of John the Baptist with the, with the baptism of Jesus, or a reference to his baptism. And we read about it in, in our text this morning, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, and I want you to understand this is an introduction to a very important person. Look at it with me, Mark chapter 1, Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. M Mark has an intentional focus, an intentional purpose in this rather brief account uh, of, of Jesus' baptism. Uh, Matthew's account is much longer, almost twice as long. But, but Mark simply wants to, introduce, wants to introduce his readers to Jesus. And, and actually, we find that it's God who makes the introduction. And that's the point. From the beginning of this gospel to the very end, we are supposed to see that Jesus is none other than the very Son of God. I told you a couple of weeks ago in our introduction to this book that Matthew's gospel is, is very fast moving. We learn more about uh, Jesus and in, in what he does than in what he says. But, but, but 
before we can learn anything about what Jesus does, which crescendos in his death, burial, and resurrection, we have to know who Jesus is. You see, it is who Jesus is that makes that crescendo mean anything. Theologians refer to this as the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that both are immensely, infinitely important. And now it is true that his works were impressive. I mean, there could be no denying them. There were, there were lots of witnesses, even though people for centuries have been trying to deny them. But, but he healed people of every disease imaginable. He raised people from the dead. He, he exercised demons. He calmed storms. He walked on water. He fed thousands with a boy's lunch. And nor could there be any doubting the, the fact that he was raised from the dead, just like he said he would be. I mean, there, were, there was too much evidence. Again, people have tried to deny that to the present day. But listen, there's just too much evidence and way too many witnesses. And, and so people... And they saw his works. They saw those amazing miracles. Even, even the Pharisees who vehemently and violently opposed him saw what he did, and they couldn't deny those miracles, those works. And, and so here's what they decided to do. They decided to attack his person. Since we can't attack his works, let's attack his person. What you do, Jesus, you're doing by the power of Satan. Again, can't deny the miracles. Dead or alive, lame or walking, blind or seeing, deaf or hearing, possessed or are freed. So they said, what you do, you are doing by the power of Beelzebub. You are doing by the power of Satan. And I want you to understand, if, if that was true, if Jesus was in league with Satan, then of course, his, his death for sinners was absolutely meaningless. But, but, but more than that... If Jesus was just a man, if he was not the Son of God that Mark is trying to demonstrate for us today, I want you to understand that the rest of this book is meaningless. If Jesus was just a good example for you, and you're trying to pat in your life after him because you think he was a really great guy, and he really said some cool things. And, and in fact, he changed the entire world. But you don't understand that he is the very son of God. You're wasting your time. Let's go home and play. Well, we can't play golf because it's raining. But why are you here? Why are we here? You see, Hebrews 2 says it, says it this way. Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made. He had to come in flesh, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Okay, that's really nice. Notice he had to come in the flesh to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Son of God had to be made the Son of Man so that he could become the appropriate sacrifice for the sins of his people. M meaning... Who Jesus is, is foundational to what Jesus did. We got we to get this squared away before we can ever look at a single thing that he said or a single thing that he did. It's the person followed by the work of Jesus. So Mark introduces us to this main character, this Jesus, with this rather 
stunning introduction. It is supposed to be an amazing first impression. You're supposed to look at this and scratch your head and say, are you kidding me? Let me, let me give you a simple brief outline of these three verses. That's all we're going to look at this morning. <laughs> you know I can preach an entire sermon without going into a single verse, but that's okay. We're going to do three this morning. The baptism of Jesus, which is frankly really not that important to Mark. What is important to Mark is what follows this introduction of Jesus in verses 10 and 11. In review, we began this book again a couple of weeks ago, and we saw the forerunner uh, was John the Baptist. You see, at this time in history, if a king or a dignitary, an important person, were, were, were to pay a visit to a city, a herald would be sent ahead to announce his coming. This way the people could prepare. The great efforts would be made, you know, for... Uh, for the visit, people, I mean, potholes would be filled, rocks removed, ruts smoothed out, trash would be collected and either burned or, or hidden. I mean, great care and attention would be given to prepare for this regal, important dignitary, visitor, king, whoever. John the Baptist announced the coming of the Christ, just like Isaiah said he would. He, and like the heralds of old, he comes and he says, hey, there's someone coming. Prepare the way. But remember, he said, prepare the way of the Lord. And in quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah is prepare the way of Yahweh, prepare the way of God himself. And he's talking about Jesus. That's significant. Their preparation was not to be in cleaning up, however, um, the outside. Fill a few potholes. Uh, smooth a few ruts. Their preparation for the coming of this one was to be made on the inside. They were to repent. They were to turn from their sin. They were to be spiritually prepared. You see, the king and his kingdom uh, were at hand. And as a sign of repentance, people by the hordes came from Jerusalem and, and Judea to be baptized by John. Matthew tells us that some came to, to John and they wanted to bypass this this necessary requirement of repentance. In other words, they just wanted to, they did want to just kind of clean up the exterior. Again, f fill a few potholes, smooth out a few blemishes, fill a few rats. And John railed against them, saying they needed to be cleaned up on the inside. They, they needed to repent and to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. In essence, John was saying, uh, you're not ready. You're not prepared uh, for the, uh, this baptism for the coming of, of this Christ without repentance. This brings us to our story. So John's baptizing, and, and one day Jesus showed up uh, to be baptized by John. Now, we're not sure exactly uh, how long John had been preaching and, and baptizing by this time, but most suppose that it had probably been less than a year. Now, you might wonder at this point, do John and Jesus know each other? Well, we, we remember, for example, that Jesus grew up in a carpenter's home up in Nazareth in, in Galilee. That's up, up in the north of uh, uh, Palestine. And, and John grew up in the south in a town in the hill country of Judea before he went out into the wilderness of Judea to do his, uh, to do his ministry. But we also remember that their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, well, they were cousins. In fact, Mary visited Elizabeth while they were both pregnant with their respective uh, boys and stayed with her for three months. And each of them knew about the miraculous circumstances uh, surrounding the birth of each of their children. Elizabeth was old, Mary was a virgin. And, and no doubt each knew what the angelic messenger said about the future roles of, of their boys. And, and no doubt they shared those stories with their 
Sons, as they grew up, you're not going to believe who your cousin is. Whether or not they spent time together during those first 30 years, uh, we don't really know. But I think it is safe to say that they at least knew who the other one was. So Mark tells us that Jesus arrived from Nazareth. Now, we are quite familiar uh, with Nazareth because of, you know, Christmas and, and all of that. But Nazareth, you've got to understand, was, was really a, a nothing town. It's not even mentioned at all in the Old Testament. It doesn't appear in the Talmud, which is the, 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 kind of the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. It doesn't, it doesn't appear in the writings of Josephus, who was a very famous Jewish historian during uh, this time. But most estimates place Nazareth as this little bitty tiny village of maybe a few hundred people, a very small, nothing village. In John's gospel, when Philip goes to tell Nathaniel, hey, you're not going to believe this, we found the Christ. Who is it? It's Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he's, and Nathaniel responded, are you, are you kidding me? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It would be like someone from Charlotte here. He said, can anything good come out of like meat camp? Sorry if you live there. <laughs> Are you kidding? And, uh, now, Mark had said that John the Baptist was preaching, and he had this specific message. He was saying, after me, one is coming. He's coming. Prepare the way. He's coming. He was mightier. He's stronger. He's greater than I. I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the next, very next verse, don't miss it. It was last week, but now, hey, next verse, and Jesus came. Very clearly, Jesus is the one of whom John spoke. And don't miss the sh shift. We're supposed to notice. Mark has been writing about John, and so you expect him. He's the subject, right? So you expect him to say, and John then baptized Jesus. But John is no longer the subject. He fades into the background. His name doesn't even appear until the end of the sentence. And Jesus came. I want you to understand that Jesus is the subject of what? Well, everything. He's the subject. I don't know if you have watched the news in the la this last week, but we've had an important dignitary come over the last few days to our country. Uh, up in some important cities, Philadelphia and New York and Washington, D.C. And this um, supposed leader of the Christian world, the Pope I'm talking about, Pope Francis, comes and he's given the opportunity. He's given, and this is, I'm not railing against the Catholic Church or the Pope. I want you to hear what I'm saying. He's given the opportunity to address both houses of Congress at one time, you know, uh, the House of Representatives and the, and, and the Senate both at one time and Republicans and Democrats and they even acted like they liked each other and sat there and applauded. And, and, and then he went from there and he, he, he spoke to the United Nations. I mean, we're talking the entire world largely. Is, they're there. And he's given the opportunity, this world Christian, the, the leader of, the, the world leader of the Christian church. And he gives two speeches. And I, I didn't listen to them, I read them. I, I read them both. And he gives two speeches to Congress and to the world. He's got a world platform, and he never one time, not once, did he mention the name of Jesus. How do you do that? He is the subject of everything. Everybody clapped, everybody... 
Because he talked about global warming. I don't know where you stand on that. I don't care. I don't care where you stand on that political thing. Well, he talked about taking care of poor people. I'm all for taking care of poor people. How do you give two speeches to some of the most important people on the planet and never mention the name of Jesus? He missed the subject of everything. We would never expect Jesus to come from Galilee. I mean, certainly not Nazareth. You'd expect the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world uh, to come from, you know, Jerusalem. If He's going to be the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, uh, through you all the nations of the world <laughs> The nations are gathered in the United Nations. Let me tell you about the hope of the world. You'd, ex you'd expect uh, that this one would come from Jerusalem, from a palace, Maybe the temple, a political leader, a religious leader, not from a carpenter's house in Nazareth, a, a town that no one knows and even more no one cares about. But that's the way Jesus came. His was an inauspicious beginning. Mark tells us nothing about his miraculous birth or his childhood, nothing. We don't know anything. You pick up Mark, you don't know anything. Luke tells us he's about 30 years of age now, and he just suddenly bursts on this he bursts on the scene, and we really know little, relatively little about his birth. I know we make a big deal about it at Christmas, biggest holiday of the year. I'm not sure why. Well, because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Birth of Jesus, childhood, you've had all of those passages up together comprise 4% of the gospel narratives. 4%. Mark doesn't even mention it. He just shows up at the Jordan. And he asked John to baptize him. Luke makes it clear that there were others present there, others who were being baptized by Jesus, but I want you to, or by John, but I want you to understand that Jesus appears to be alone. No family members present. Uh, he hasn't called any of his disciples yet. Um, I want you to notice that the king of the universe. He's about to be crowned, if you will. The Savior of the world, the Son of God, is about to be introduced. <laughs> no one there even knows who he is except John. And no one even cares. No, no servants, no bands, annoyingly playing pomp and circumstance over and over. No hail to the chief, no dignitaries, no military, military salute, no parades, no celebration. Just, just Jesus. I want you to understand that's the way he came. He arrives and asks John to baptize him. Now, at Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, at first, John says, time out. No way. You got this confused. I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And he gives two reasons. First, he says, you, this needs to be the other way around. I, I need you to baptize me. Likely, he means, I need your spirit baptism. You don't need my water baptism, which leads to the second concern that John had. His was a baptism. John's was a baptism of repentance. People were turning from their sin to, to God. This was an outward sign of their repentance, is being baptized. And so John is concerned, and he is asking, of what sin do you need to repent, Jesus? You're the spotless lamb of God. Come to take away the sin of the world. You see, he understood that if, John, if Jesus was just a man with sin and all like you and me, we'd have a problem. 
Jesus had no sin. I want you to understand that. When he was growing up in his home, he, he, he never sinned. Can you imagine what that would be like to grow up? He, he had brothers and sisters. They were all younger, of course, James, Jude, to name a couple. And, and, and can you imagine what that would be like to grow up with the older brother who not only, you know, your older brother I know always tells you he's right, but can you imagine what it would be like to grow up with an older brother who was, in fact, always right? Never lied to his mother, never disobeyed his father, never cheated on a test, never had feelings of unjustified anger, never had an impure thought, that's something, never spoke an unkind word, never performed an unrighteous action. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He was the very perfect, see, we're talking about the person of Jesus this morning. He was the perfect son of God and son of man. So why then would he be baptized with the baptism of repentance? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in some rather cryptic words in Matthew chapter 3. Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us, you and me, John, to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? mean? There have been dozens of interpretations of this verse. Without going through all of them, I think there may be uh, two or three uh, important ideas here. It occurs to me as I say that there may be two or three. I have three. I know I'm going to give you three. Why do I say there may be two or three? As if I might be surprised there's a third one. (laughs) There's three, okay? It occurred to me in the first service. I wrote those words. I'm not sure why. Um, So, it is, it is true, number one, it is true that John's was a baptism of repentance. John's, we talked about this last week, was not Christian baptism. But it was also a baptism signal, signaling readiness for the kingdom of God which was at hand. He preached that message, so did Jesus. And I think Jesus, I believe Jesus, by this act, was signaling his own readiness to do the work of the Messiah. It becomes the occasion for his commissioning as the one that John was preparing the way for. This was, if you will, his introduction, his acknowledgement that the king and his kingdom, that they were indeed at hand, and he was prepared to fulfill the duties that he came to fulfill. Second, I I believe in this way he sets an example for us, uh, an example of obedience. At this time, God was calling on people who would be his followers, who would be his followers to submit to this baptism of repentance. Uh, while Jesus didn't have to be baptized, he was acknowledging that what John was preaching was a valid standard, a valid preparation to be followed. And so later, so Jesus is baptized. And so later when he commands his followers, different baptism, but when he commands his followers to be baptized, we can go, see, Jesus was. Third, and I think this most important, I believe that Jesus was humbly identifying with, with humanity. John did not expect the Messiah, of the Savior of the world, to be baptized. But Jesus, you see, was the suffering servant. He was the one who, was come, who had come to bear the sins of the world. Jesus is saying, I am ready to be identified with sinful humanity. While I have no sins of which to repent, I am ready to bear their sins. Isaiah 53 says it like this, he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus' baptism represented the willing identification of the sinless Son of God with the sinful people that he came to save. 
Think of it this way. Listen to these words. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. Later, the Apostle Paul would say of Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that captures both important aspects of that doctrine of justification. Not only are our sins removed, but we receive the very righteousness of Christ. This humble servant role Jesus readily accepted for you and me. And so Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, which leads us to our very important second point, the introduction of this Jesus. There are three significant things that happened when Jesus was coming up out of the water. By the way, please notice um, Jesus was coming up out of the water because after all, the word baptism literally means to dip or to immerse. The practice of the New Testament was that of immersion. Jesus was baptized and came up out of the, the water. That's why we practice immersion here. There are all kinds, there are these three significant things that happen and there are all kinds of references to Isaiah's prophecies concerning this Messiah, this suffering servant, in these three significant things that happen, I will point them out. But I want you to get that. Mark starts the gospel by talking about a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in the forerunner. And now they're all over the place when we get to Jesus. First thing we see, read, is this. He, that is Jesus, saw the heavens opening. Now, I hate to admit this, but that is a really poor translation. The ESV, you can hoot and holler, those of you that use that. Great translation, by the way. The ESV got it right when they say that he saw the heavens being torn open. You see, the word is the word schizo, from which we get our word schism, okay? Schism. The heavens were torn apart at this moment. Jesus coming up out of heaven, and Jesus looks and he sees the heavens being torn open. So it reminds us of Isaiah 64, 1, when Isaiah is praying, and he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and he did in the person of his son. We're going to come back to this one in a moment. Second thing that we see is the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descending on him. Now, now the text does not say that the, a bird came and, and landed on Jesus. It says the Holy Spirit was seen descending like a dove in the form of a dove. What does that mean? I wish I could tell you. I don't really know. I, that, there's, a, there's a book that, that, that lists 16 possible in, in meanings of this dove. Everybody wants to know what is the dove. For example, one of the one of those 16 interpretations, in fact, the most common one is that in, in Genesis chapter 1, you see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Here he is hovering again like a dove. Uh, okay. What, what is clear is that all of the gospel writers viewed this descending form in a dove, as a dove. They see this form as the Holy Spirit, as did John the Baptist, who actually saw the event in John chapter 1. Uh, we read these words, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained on him. That is, he remained on Jesus. In fact, Mark intensifies it and he actually uses the word into. He descended into Jesus. 
The point is, John saw the Spirit descend, and, and while the, the Gospel of John and it goes on to tell, and, and, and the Gospel of John goes on to tell us that this is a sign confirming that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Well, how does this spirit descending prove that Jesus is the Messiah? Back to Isaiah, chapter eleven. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit will rest on him. And then in that very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 61, which Jesus one day was given to scroll in a synagogue and, and asked to read, and he read from Isaiah chapter 61, and he told them, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And they were so irritated by that, they took him out to a, they took him out to a cliff to throw him, throw him off. But, but, but this is the passage that he read, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to, to prisoners. So Holy Spirit, you see, in fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah, came and rested on Jesus. But that begs a very important question. Why did the Holy Spirit come to Jesus? Wasn't? Wasn't Jesus fully God? Did, did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? My favorite answer, yes and no. You see, when Jesus, when he became a man, Jesus did not lose his divinity. He was still God in every way. If you've ever heard, if you've ever heard this before, when you listen to me right now, listen up. If you have ever heard, from Philippians chapter 2, that when he emptied himself, that when Jesus came, that he emptied himself of his deity, I want you to know that it is absolute heresy. He was fully God in the flesh. When it says he emptied himself, he emptied himself of the prerogative of the use of those attributes of the, of the, of the Shekinah glory so that he wouldn't kill people when he came in excess of light. No one can look at God and live. If he didn't come veiled in human flesh, he would have killed people. First one would have been Joseph. Oh, Dad, Mary, next. Shepherd's gone. That would not have worked. He was fully God. We're talking about the person of Jesus. He was fully God, but in, in, in his deity, he needed nothing. But in his humble humanity, he was being anointed for service and granted strength for ministry. The Holy Spirit came, was his divine introduction and, and empowering in his humanity. You understand what I just said? Do you understand that Jesus coming in the flesh, emptying himself, then needed the Holy Spirit to come and fill him to empower him for service. Do you understand that? Third thing that happened was the voice which came from heaven. Um, look at it again, verse 11. So verse 11, and a voice came out of the heavens, you and you is in the emphatic, you and you alone are my beloved son, you and you alone in you I am well pleased. And we're supposed to get this. God is the one who speaks from heaven. And he is speaking to his son. And he places a seal of approval on Jesus of Nazareth. Again, this anointing by the Spirit and affirmation by the Father was 
foreseen in Isaiah chapter 42 specifically, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. This is what is happening. People familiar with the Old Testament would be looking at this would be looking at this introduction of this main character in Mark chapter 1 and they'd be going, are you kidding me? God has come. Jesus was and is the divine son of God. I used to work for a Christian credit union. Okay, I've shared that with you before. Some of you remember that. I used to work for a Christian credit union. What does it mean to be a Christian credit union? Well, we did financial services for for Christians, like we gave loans. And the fact that we were Christians meant that when we denied you for a loan, we would pray with you before we sent you on your way. (laughs) To join the union, you had to be a professing evangelical Christian, and you had to hold to orthodox Christian doctrine. Since I had a degree in theology at that point, they would often come to me saying such and such a group wants to join. Are they orthodox? I love that part of my job. I mean, turning down someone for a loan, not, not so much fun. Turning down people because they were heretics, now, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, once, while I was in Southern California, which is where they were headquartered for some meetings, the president called and said, hey, we have this group. I don't mind telling you. It's the United Pentecostals uh, who on the surface seem okay. They want to join. Uh, what do you think? And so I did some research to confirm my suspicions and found that they were not orthodox. They are unorthodox. In fact, I would suggest heretical. Um, They are what is called modalists. You say, what is a modalist? In the early part of church history, there was a group of heretics running around um, espousing the teaching of a guy named Sibelius. Sibelius was a, this was very early, this is the early second, uh, third century, about 215 AD. There was a guy named Sibelius who was running around denying the Trinity. He said to believe in a Trinity uh, is to have three gods. We don't have three gods, he said. Rather, we have one God who has manifested himself in three modes uh, throughout time. This is what he said. In the Old Testament, he was the Father. In the New Testament, he's Jesus. And today, he is the Holy Spirit. Not one God eternally existing in three persons, but one God existing in three different manifestations or modes throughout time, but never one at a time. I want you to understand, if you don't even understand what I just said, (laughs) that is unorthodox. While it is true that the Bible never uses the word Trinity, that was a term coined by Tertullian, uh, it is a word used to describe what the Bible teaches. You see, the Bible very clearly teaches that there is one God But but we get that. I want you to understand that. We are monotheists. We are not tritheists. We believe in one God. But it also teaches us that the Father is God. It teaches us that the Son is God. And it teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God. And here, I want you to understand that we have all three persons present at one time. Did you catch that? We have the Father in heaven, the Spirit descending on Jesus, three persons, one place, one time. Sorry, Sibelius. How, How do you explain that? As best we can in the Trinity, there is one God eternally existing in three persons who are co-equal. They together make up one God. And yet, I want you to understand this. This is very important. It's not that we, each one is one-third God, okay? The Father is one-third God. Jesus is one-third God. The Holy Spirit is one. No, 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 no. Each is fully God, possessing all of the attributes of deity necessary to be God. And yet, also, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father, and 
you're scratching your head and you say, could you explain that a little bit further? I would love to, as would multitudes of Christians throughout church history. (laughs) That's the best I can do. By the way, we did not let the United Pentecostals join the credit union. This all brings me to my conclusion this morning. We have seen this introduction of the Son of God. We have seen how Jesus was confirmed by His baptism that He was indeed the Messiah, willing to accept His messianic duties. We have seen Him empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have seen the Father give His divine stamp of approval, revealing that Jesus was the divine Son of God. Do you understand how important this event is? This is foundational to our our faith. Now, remember, I I, I told you to hold on to this heaven being schizoed, right? Right, right, being torn apart. It's interesting to note that Mark only uses that term one other time, one other time in his entire book. It's at the end of the book in Mark chapter 15. It's when Jesus was crucified, and actually, he uses the term after Jesus is dead. Look at it with me. Mark 15, verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn. That's, that's the word. The veil of the temple was schizoed in, in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Do you see that? I mean, look at that as what is called an inclusio. These are bookends, an intentional bookend on the, on the book. When Jesus was introduced, the heavens were torn, were torn apart, and the voice of heaven came from God, the Father, who said, I want you to meet my son. And then when Jesus dies and finishes work, the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. And we have access into the very presence of the Holy of Holy. And Jesus says, now I want you to meet my Father. Do you see what Jesus did in both his person and his work? Both are necessary, infinitely so. Before we can ever talk about one word that Jesus said or one thing that Jesus did, the very first thing we have to know is who he was. He's the Son of God. Stand for prayer.